Dear boys and girls, did you ever kill anybody? You say, Pastor, what do you think of us? Of course, I never killed anybody. Let me ask you another question. Did you ever, were you ever guilty of name-calling? Did you ever say to anybody, I hate you? Have you ever done that? Ah, you see, now it becomes uncomfortable. I don't think there's anybody here in this audience that has physically killed another human being. And of course, that's the most literal meaning of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill, and actually the Hebrew word means thou shalt not murder. And to murder someone is that you deliberately, purposefully, take the life of another human being. That's why the passage that we will be considering this morning with God's help is a very convicting one. Because even though none of us here have physically killed another human being, Christ will teach us something about the sixth commandment, which is profoundly unsettling, and yet very necessary for us to consider. So let's read again verses 21 through 26 of Matthew 5. Verses 21 through 26 of Matthew 5, where we read God's word and our text. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. That means until you've paid the last penny. That's what that means, the smallest coin known in Israel. And so what Christ sets before us in this passage, congregation, is what we call the spirituality of the sixth commandment. And I will explain in a moment what that expression means, the spirituality of the sixth commandment. So I can say this, that means that what Christ sets before us is what is behind that commandment, what is beyond the letter of the law. First of all, he addresses our attitude toward our neighbor. And we see that, of course, in verses 21 
and 22. Secondly, he addresses our worship with our neighbor. In other words, he makes a very powerful connection between our worship and how we are interacting with our fellow men. And thirdly, our calling to be at peace with our neighbor. Because those last two verses, as we will see, are also remarkable. Christ is using an analogy here to illustrate how diligent we must be in seeking to be reconciled with our neighbor. So in other words, in this passage, Christ not only looks at the negative aspect of the sixth commandment, but also at its positive requirement. Because those belong inseparably together. So whenever the word of God says, thou shalt not, what is implied is thou shalt. And so Christ first deals with the negative part to which we are all inclined as fallen human beings. And then he, in a very unique way, focuses on the positive requirement involving our worship. And thirdly, uses it in a unique analogy to press upon us how urgent the matter of reconciliation is, how seriously we are to take our calling to be reconciled with our brother. First of all, then, our attitude towards our neighbor. Last week, with God's help, we considered that astounding statement whereby Christ really sets before us the very purpose for which he preached that sermon to his people, the people who were his according to his flesh, the people of Israel who were so ignorant of the word of God, the people of Israel who had been deprived of the faithful teaching of God's word, the people of Israel who had become accustomed to the misrepresentation of God's character and the misrepresentation of God's word by means of the scribes and of the Pharisees. The people of Israel who at that time hardly were able to read their Hebrew Bible. Most of them could not read their Hebrew Bible. And why not? Well, during their time of captivity, during their exile, that skill gradually was erased. When they came back, the language they spoke was Aramaic, a Hebrew dialect. So most of them could not read their Hebrew Bible anymore and were entirely dependent on what the scribes and Pharisees told them. And so in the remainder of this chapter, we're going to hear six different times, you have heard that it was said. But let me tell you what the Word of God really means. Because that's Christ's desire. That's Christ's burning desire to confront the misrepresentation of the Word of God. And as we will see, ultimately, in the entire Sermon on the Mount, from here on forward, Christ systematically dismantles the false and phony religion of the Pharisees and replaces it with what true religion looks like. And as I pointed out to you, his overarching burden, let us never forget it, his overarching burden 
was to be the Savior of sinners. That's why he came. He came into this world to seek and to save that which was lost. And he stood before a multitude who were clueless when it came to the gospel, clueless to the essential truth of the word of God. And so his objective in preaching that sermon, let me emphasize it again, is not to give the people of Israel a course in Christian ethics. His purpose was to convict them of their sinnership. The purpose of preaching this sermon is to confront these people that they needed him as their Savior to save them from their sins. And that included, by the way, that included the scribes and Pharisees. Often when we speak about the scribes and Pharisees, we think of them as the adversaries of Christ. And they were. They gave him such a hard time. They were always after him. They were maligning him. And they ultimately were responsible for getting him nailed to the cross. But Christ loved sinners, including scribes and Pharisees. They too needed to hear this. Sadly, most of them resisted his teaching. Most of them rejected it. Most of them were hostile to that preaching. But Christ had them in mind as well. And so when Christ uttered those stunning words, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't just making a dramatic statement to get the people's attention, which he desired to do. But he also wanted to confront the Pharisees. He also wanted to expose them for who they really were in the sight of God. And this was, as I said, this was an earth-shaking statement for that entire multitude that was before him. Because these people really believed that the scribes and Pharisees were the ultimate standard of righteousness. They believed that scribes and Pharisees were the closest to heaven. And Christ, with one blow, demolishes all of that. He demolishes that whole system that they had established. And he was saying to this multitude, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is utterly worthless in the eyes of God. If you have nothing more than that, you will perish forever. You need a righteousness that is defined by God himself. You need a righteousness that is acceptable to God. And that's his desire. And that's why that passage is the governing principle, the key that unlocks the meaning of the entire Sermon on the Mount. That was his desire. And that's why, what, what does he do first of all? In this chapter, no sooner has he uttered those words, and he begins an exposition of the law. That's what the rest of chapter 5 is. And why? Because the people didn't understand the true intent of the law. And because they didn't understand the true intent of the law, they failed to see themselves as sinners in the sight of God. So Christ's intent by setting before them 
not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, is to convict his audience that they, every one of them, that they were transgressors of the law. That's what Jesus did with the rich young ruler. Boys and girls, you know that story. This young man, he came to Jesus. And he thought that he had all his spiritual ducks in a row. And so when Jesus begins to list the commandments, you can see the smile on his face. Ah, check mark, check mark, check mark. I've done all these things from my youth. Oh, yes, he did. He had observed the letter of the law. And then Jesus, as you know, he poked a hole into all of this. And he unraveled his self-confidence. He says, go ahead. Sell all that you have and follow me. And so there Jesus, see what Jesus did there, and this gets me now to what I want to explain. Jesus confronted that young man who had obeyed the letter of the law. He confronted him with the spirit of the law. In other words, what Christ confronted that young man with is that Christ, that God is not merely satisfied with the outward observance of the law. But God is concerned with your and my heart. He knows what our heart looks like. He knows our heart and the secrets within. And so when Jesus said, you have heard such and such, but I say unto you, He was not suggesting that he was setting aside everything that Moses had taught. On the contrary, what he was saying, what you have heard is not the truth of God's Word. But let me now tell you what the truth really is. And boys and girls, why? Can you tell me? Why was Jesus so qualified to do that? Why could Jesus say to these people, but I say unto you? I, in other words, why did Jesus say to these people, your teachers have told you this, but let me tell you what the law really means. Why was he qualified to do that? Precisely because Jesus was the lawgiver of Mount Sinai. That that law was formulated by him. He is the author of that law. He pronounced it on Mount Sinai. Remember, Jesus was not merely a man. He was not merely a prophet. He was the eternal Son of God. This is God himself speaking. So reverently speaking, God is explaining his own word to these people. Jesus is saying, But let me tell you what I really meant when I gave that commandment. Let me tell you what it really means. And of course, that is so very significant for us. So when we talk about the spirituality of the law, what that means is that God's law doesn't just pertain to our actions. But God's law governs our motives. God's law governs our inclinations. So you could put it this way. 
What Christ is doing here, he is showing us an x-ray of our hearts. Now, boys and girls, I don't know if you've ever had an x-ray, but you know that sometimes your doctor will order an x-ray. Say, for instance, you, you broke your arm or your leg or something. The doctor will take an x-ray. Why? Because he wants to see what's going on. Something that he cannot see with his eye, but the x-ray allows him to see what otherwise the eye cannot see. And sometimes that can be very unsettling. I'll never forget when my first wife and I sat down in the doctor's office. And he showed us on the x-ray that my wife had cancer. Something you could not see with the naked eye. But the x-ray told us the truth. That was necessary. We had to be confronted with the truth of her condition because now we were ready to listen for him to recommend a doctor who could hopefully address that issue. Without that x-ray, without the realization of what was really going on, we would have not been interested in hearing about this specialist. And so it is with us, congregation. That's why God, by means of his law, and by means of these words in Matthew 5, he, he will show us the x-ray of your and my heart. He will show us what he sees, what others may not see. And he penetrates, he goes right beyond the surface of our lives and causes the light of his word to shine into the deepest recesses of our hearts. A congregation that's necessary. And when, when, God's, when, when the Holy Spirit works savingly in our hearts, the spirituality of the law will become a painful reality for us. It's necessary, a necessary experience to make us realize we need a Savior. When that dawns on us what the spirituality of the law is, when it dawns on us what is on God's x-ray, God's x-ray of our inner existence, God's x-ray of our heart, God's x-ray of all of our motives and our attitudes and intentions, we will be undone. We will realize that we are desperately wicked and in need of a Savior. And so he begins here by making this statement, Thou shalt, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. We all understand that. That's still true today. If you commit a real physical murder, you will stand in danger of judgment. You will face a prison sentence and possibly even the death sentence. That's all understood. But now he says, but I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. To be angry without a cause. What does that mean? That means unjustified anger. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger. 
Christ manifested righteous anger when he overturned the tables of the money changers. Moses manifested righteous anger when he came down the mountain with the tables and he saw the people dancing around the golden calf. That was righteous anger, an anger that was motivated by his concern for God's honor. But Christ is talking about that anger, which is a manifestation of our sinful and depraved hearts. He's talking about the loss of temper. He's talking about being angry for no good reason. He's talking about being angry because somebody crossed our path or somebody did something displeasing to us. Somebody irritated us. Somebody annoyed us. That kind of anger is what Christ is talking about. What Christ is saying, when you you are guilty of that kind of anger, you are transgressing the sixth commandment. You have transgressed the sixth commandment. And then he talks about saying derogatory things about your neighbor. Name-calling. Verbal abuse is what he's talking about. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka. So Raka was an Aramaic word that means you, that you would call somebody a useless person. You would call somebody a, a blockhead, an imbecile, a good-for-nothing. In other words, saying something very nasty, something very derogatory about a fellow human being. Christ is saying, and you're guilty of that, you are guilty, as Matthew Henry puts it, of what's called tongue murder. Murdering someone with your tongue. Think about that. Christ here condemns name-calling. Christ condemns here when we use nasty words to describe someone else. When we describe someone else, a fellow human being, as if they are worthless human beings. Raka. And then the worst, whosoever shall say thou fool. And we actually miss the thrust of that word because obviously the word foolish is used in various ways. But what it means here is that you are saying, you are nothing but a reprobate. You are, you are a person who deserves to be in hell. Or as people would say in our culture today, the hell with you. What a terrible thing. What a terrible thing to wish that upon another fellow human being. And so Christ is talking about what we call character assassination. Name calling. Being verbally abusive. And who of us would dare to say that we have never done that? Congregation, Christ is saying, and you're guilty of that. You're guilty of murder in the sight of God. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, verse 10, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. 
And so what Christ is saying, that whoever is guilty of this is in danger of divine judgment. 1 John 2 verse 9, we read, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. What does it mean to hate? That means you have such an intense dislike for another human being that you actually wish them dead. That you are so, you have such utter disregard, such, that's such contempt. That's what Christ is talking about here. To have contempt for a fellow human being. That you have such contempt for a fellow human being that you actually wish them dead. And so who has not ever used the expression, I, I, could, I could just wring his neck. Have you ever seen a farmer wring the neck of a chicken? When a farmer wrings the neck of a chicken, the chicken dies. So we use an expression, I could wring his neck. We're actually saying, I could, I could kill him. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. So Christ is saying, hatred is murder in the sight of God. You know what that means? That in God's sight, when you are guilty of that, when you are guilty of unrighteous anger, when you are guilty of temper tantrums, explosive temper, when you are guilty of name-calling, verbal abuse, you are worthy of the death penalty. Because that's the penalty for murder. The penalty for transgression of the sixth commandment is the death penalty. Numbers 35, verse 18. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Verse 30. Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death. And so Christ here adds a warning he is saying, when you are guilty of this, and, and actually he uses repetition here, three instances, right, to really drive home the point powerfully so that there's no mistake at what he means. He said, when you are guilty of this, and if you don't repent, you are in danger of hellfire. Here's one of those instances where we see, and we will see it repeatedly throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Christ often spoke about hell. Christ is saying, sin makes you worthy of hell. And he's saying here, when you are guilty of these things, and if you don't repent of them, those sins alone, those sins alone make you worthy of hellfire. That's how serious sin is. There are no minor sins as far as God is concerned. And so it's not a minor thing when we speak with contempt about a fellow human being. It's not a minor sin when we engage in name-calling. It's not a minor sin when we are verbally abusive. Christ is saying, when you do those things, you are transgressing God's law, and you are in danger of hellfire unless you repent 
of your sins. That's how penetrating, penetrating the law of God is. Actually, what Christ is teaching us here, that one sin, one sinful desire, one sinful inclination makes you worthy of hell already. That's how offensive sin is in the sight of God. That's why Christ so often spoke about hell, because we are all, and I include myself, we are all inclined to think light of sin, especially our sins. Christ is saying, let there be no mistake about it. He wanted his people, he wanted them to understand. These sins, you may have thought you were keeping the sixth commandment. You may have thought that as long as you did not kill somebody physically, that you were exonerated. But he penetrates and said, this is what God looks at. That's the negative part. Now we go to the positive part. Second point. Therefore, he says, therefore, that's always an important word in the Bible. When you read the word therefore, boys and girls, always ask yourself, wherefore is the therefore, therefore? So in other words, what what is the connection? So Christ clearly wants us to think about these two verses as he proceeds. Therefore, he says, if thou bring thy gift to the altar... And there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee. Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. So now Christ is calling us, in light of all this, he is calling us to serious self-examination. And he does it in a very unique way. By Addressing the whole subject of worship, because that's what he's talking about. Any act of worship, and he uses, of course, he uses language, he uses an analogy to which his Jewish audience could relate. Because in their context, their whole religion revolved around the altar. It is to the altar that you came as a sinner. It is to the altar that you would bring your gifts. It is the altar that would testify of God's grace and mercy. It is at the altar that the, that the guilty Israelite could obtain the pardon of his sins. Their whole religion revolved around the altar. So Christ uses that here to, to symbolize an act of worship. So Christ is saying here, when you perform any act of worship, whether privately or whether publicly, Don't engage in it if in your heart is smoldering the sin that I have just described. This sin of anger and bitterness and hatred can be smoldering in our hearts. Smoldering, smoldering, smoldering. And for the Pharisees, you see, that was not an issue. Because for the Pharisees, all that mattered was what they looked like on the outside. All that they cared about is whether the cup was clean on the outside. So they had no problem standing on the corner 
and calling attention to how faithfully they worship God. As you know from the parable of the publican, we, I think we mentioned that last week. Oh, they were so proud of their accomplishment. They ticked off. They listed all the things they did for God. But now what Christ is saying, he is saying, but remember, when you worship, remember in whose presence you are coming. So here Christ, he, he rips away the facade of this external religion of the scribes and Pharisees. He rips it away. And he's saying, how can you come into the presence of God with the fire of anger and bitterness and hatred smoldering in your heart? So in other words, if you come to worship, that's what he's saying. And there you remember, as you bow your knees, as you seek God's face, as you open your Bible, as you sit down in the house of God, and you remember that your brother hath ought against thee. Now that could be interpreted several ways. If you realize there is an unresolved conflict in my life. Whether or not it is your fault. But if you know that somebody has something against you, or you remember that you may have done something offensive towards a fellow human being, whether it's your husband, your wife, your children, your extended family, whatever it may be. Christ is saying, stop right there. Don't bother coming into God's presence until you have that resolved, you see. And so the crucial point, you see, that Christ is making, that's why this is so brilliantly constructed. But Christ is saying, remember, when you come to worship, remember in whose presence you are coming. Remember, you are worshiping a God who knows everything about you. You are worshiping a God who knows your heart and the secrets within. When you come to worship God, remember that as Paul writes in Hebrews 4.13, all things, and I mean all things, are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, before worshiping God, whether we do it privately or whether we do it publicly, we must take inventory of our horizontal relationships. Our marriage, our family, our extended family, our church family, our employment environment, whatever it may be. So Christ is saying, don't bother honoring the first table of the law if you are violating the second table. Let me, let me repeat that. Don't bother honoring the first table of the law if you are violating the second table of the law. Which is the, the, which is the focal point, actually, of the rest of Matthew 5. It's remarkable. So Christ is actually saying, wait to worship God and first be reconciled with your brother and then come and worship God. Because the point he is making 
this is so important for me and for you, that unresolved conflict renders our worship null and void in God's sight. It is a worship that God utterly abhors. That's the point Jesus is making. That's why this is such an important passage. Because you see, that means that every time I bow my knees, every time I'm alone with God, every time Christ is saying, you need to take inventory. How are things horizontally? Before you worship God vertically, vertically, how are things horizontally in your life? Read Isaiah 1. There you can see how God abhors the, the outward form of worship. God says, I, I do away with it all. I abhor it, he said, because your hands are full of blood. In other words, you are, you are dabbling in sin, and yet you dare to come in my presence. As if nothing is the matter. Psalm 50 as well. Again, God said, you thought that I was altogether like yourself. Here you're you're doing all the things outwardly. Outwardly everything is in place. But in your heart, you are embracing sin. That's why in Psalm 66 verse 18, David writes this. If I regard iniquity in my heart... The Lord will not hear me. And I wonder how many of God's children live in spiritual darkness because of unresolved conflict. Unwillingness to be reconciled with our brother. Unwilling to be a peacemaker. Unwilling to be the least. Because what Christ is saying here, as the people of God, we must be resolved as much as possible to resolve conflict, even if we did not initiate it. Even if we did not initiate it. That's the hard part, you see. That requires grace. That means I have to be willing to utterly put myself last, utterly willing to be the least. Romans 12, verse 18, we've we've quoted that when we talked about blessed are the peacemakers. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Romans 14, verse 19, let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. And so to put it very, very simply, boys and girls, Christ is saying, make sure you straighten things out. Straighten things out with other people. Straighten it out. And then come and worship God. So what a sobering reality this is for all of us, for me too. We can outwardly, we can look innocent, outwardly, And yet we can be so very guilty before God who sees the inside of who I really am. So what is a prerequisite for fruitful worship? What is a a prerequisite for having fruitful private devotions? A fruitful prerequisite 
for fruitful family worship. A fruitful, a, a prerequisite for fruitful partaking of public worship is to do what Paul did. A conscience, voice, void of offense. Psalm 37 verse 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Ephesians 4, 26, 27, be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. And then 31, 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And then comes the final, the final analogy by which he wants to enforce what he's talking about. Because when he uses this illustration, what Christ is simply saying, he's simply saying, Do not let your conflict with your neighbor, do not let it spiral out of control. Because if you allow it to spiral out of control, you have no idea where this ultimately will bring you. It may even bring you into prison. Your conflict conflict with your neighbor could become so intense that you actually end up in court. Christ is saying, don't let that happen. Don't let your conflict with your neighbor spiral out of control. Agree with your adversary quickly. Even with someone whom you view as your adversary. Christ is saying, go out of your way to be reconciled with your adversary. And again, that requires for us to be the least. Now, of course, implied, I had no time to unpack that, implied, of course, is, is what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians, that Christians should never end up in a courtroom. If they have a disagreement, if they have a conflict, Christians should be able to settle that by the grace of God and come to a resolution. But how many court cases are there not? That began as a simple conflict. And the parties dug themselves in deeper and deeper, deeper and deeper, until they ended up in the courtroom. Christ says, don't let that happen. Don't let it spiral out of control. Be, agree with your adversary quickly. So what Christ is saying, the time for reconciliation is now. Do whatever you can to diffuse the situation because an application that certainly could be made here. If you don't, you will end up being in bondage. You will be in bondage to that conflict. That conflict will imprison you. That conflict will embitter you. That's what he's saying. Now many people are there not in our world who are consumed with bitterness that root of bitterness, who are living in a prison, the prison of their anger, the prison of their unwillingness to forgive. It's like a prison. Christ says, don't let that happen. Don't allow yourself to be imprisoned. 
But deal with it. And be the least. Take the lowest place. Proverbs 6 verse 3. This thou do, my son, and deliver thyself. When thou art come into the hand of thy friend, go humble thyself and make sure thy friend. I mentioned once before that in my first congregation, an elder taught me an unforgettable lesson. He said to me, when you're involved in a conflict... Even though you, you, you think that the other party is 99% guilty, and you only 1%, he said, act as if you are 99% the guilty one, and the other person only 1%. Because if you humble yourself, and if you acknowledge to your adversary, if you acknowledge to the other party your sinfulness, it often has a humbling and softening effect on the other party. So in plain English, Christ is saying, conflict is nothing to mess around with. Go quickly. The time is now. So we need to examine ourselves. I need to examine myself. Are there any strained relationships that need to be dealt with? Are there any conflicts that are lingering? that need to be resolved in a biblical way. That's the admonition towards all of us. Quite a few commentators make a spiritual application with which I want to end. I think it's legitimate. Because what Christ is ultimately saying, remember, as a sinner, God is your adversary. God is against you, even for the transgression of this commandment. To have God against you is the worst thing that can happen to you. And if you do not quickly seek to be reconciled with the God against whom you have sinned, you are in danger of hellfire. Because if you are not reconciled with God... If you do not obtain the pardon of your sins through Christ, you will be cast into a prison from which there will be no escape. And you will by no means come out of that prison till you have paid the utmost farthing, until you have paid your debt to the very last penny. That's the future. That's Christ, what Christ wants to head across to his people, and to us. That's how serious sin is, my friends. Oh, we cannot take sin lightly. That's what this passage confronts us with, that who of us, who of us is not guilty today? Who of us does not have to put his hand in his own bosom? Who of us does not have to humble himself before God and say, Lord, I'm guilty? Oh, what, re- what, ne- what need we have, what need I have, also in light of this sixth commandment. Lord, please, search my heart. Search my heart and see if there be any wicked way within me. Lord, search my heart if I am in any way guilty of transgressing this commandment. And lead me in the way everlasting.
That's why, you see, we need a Savior. Our spiritual predicament is such. Our indictment by the law is so very serious. There is no hope outside of this Savior. That's what Jesus wanted his people to understand. They needed to know why he came into the world. He came to save lawbreakers. And he wanted them to know that they were lawbreakers. So that they would recognize they needed him to save them from their sins. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. To use the law to compel us to look into the mirror of that law. So that we come to an end in ourselves. And that we realize my only hope is in a Jesus who came to seek and to save that which is lost. A Jesus who came to save sinners. Also transgressors of the sixth commandment. So that we would humble ourselves and go home and worship God. And examine yourself in God's presence. Lord, are there relationships that I need to deal with? And to confess with the psalmist, Lord, if thou shouldst mark iniquities, if thou shouldst mark my failures, who shall stand? But you see, there is forgiveness with thee. Let thou mayest be feared. That's why Jesus came. That's why he left his heavenly glory. That's why he preached his sermon. That's why he accepted his full responsibility at his baptism. He said, it behooves me to fulfill all righteousness for sinners who have no righteousness in order that through him we can be reconciled with God. That's the wonder of the gospel. That God has provided a complete remedy for such hopeless sinners as we are. Because Jesus is a Savior who saves to the uttermost. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, who of us can say, my hands are clean? Who of us would dare to say, I'm not guilty? Oh, God, use this to humble us, to bring us to our knees, to make us realize that we are hopelessly guilty in thy sight of transgressing thy law, that so we would see our need of this precious Christ, who in the fullness of time became the law keeper, And who was condemned as a lawbreaker in order that lawbreakers could be reconciled with thee and be restored into thy favor. May that be the fruit upon this preaching as well. That we would realize afresh that our only hope is in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. So go with us now as we go homeward and gather with us again in this evening hour. And hear us for Jesus' sake alone. Amen.